what if while ISIS was cutting off the heads of Christians, Christians were loving and serving and feeding poor Muslims? You know that's happening? I'm sure you know that the last few years have seen a refugee crisis because of the rise of ISIS and other geopolitical factors. The refugees have been on the run. People have been forced out of their homes. They've, they, they've been forced into other countries. They've, they've been forced to flee everything that they know. And, and, and the terrorist groups have used those as opportunities to exploit people for their own advantage. But Christians are there in, on the ground. Loving, serving, feeding, helpless, hurting people that don't believe like they do, that don't come from the same culture, that don't look the same. Christians are on the ground, loving, serving, feeding poor Muslims while their own lives are at risk. See, one of the strategies of ISIS is to send some of its fighters into the aid camps to uh, find uh, people to exploit, maybe for human trafficking purposes, or to recruit people to come over to their side. They, they present themselves as refugees in order to gain an advantage against their opponents or those they see as their enemies. One of the, of the uh, groups working there is a group called Christian Aid Mission. And this, this guy, Valkenberg is his last name, he was giving an interview to, the, to, to, to a newspaper. And he said, he, he, he said there was one particular guy, he didn't mention his name for obvious reasons, but he came as an ISIS fighter from northern Syria and he came as a refugee into the Jordanian, uh, Jordanian refugee camp that they were working in. And he had come to kill people in the name of his movement of ISIS. But when he got there, what he saw were that the Christians did not match up to what he'd been told Christians were. Because here were Christians loving, serving, giving their life for their enemies. I mean, of course, the Christians didn't think of them as enemies, but the Christians thought of them as, as people that needed help. And so here are Christians who are acting differently than they're supposed to be acting or that this guy's been told that they would act like, and he became a believer. He became so enthusiastic about Christ that they had to settle him down because he was going to do great danger to himself, maybe even to them because of his enthusiasm for Jesus. See, when we love people different than us, when we love people that we're not expected to love, when we act differently than what people have been told Christians are going to act like, we bring great glory to Christ. We, we become a light in a dark world. Now, I say love people different, love the unexpected, because Jesus says that if you love people like you, or if you love people who love you back, he said, hey, big deal. Uh, sinners do that. Tax collectors do that. I mean, it's his way of saying, look, everybody does that. Everybody loves people who love them. No, what honors and glorifies Jesus, what changes people's perceptions about the gospel, is when Christians love people differently than they are, different than they are. When, when we love the other. So, so who's that for you? Who is the other? Is it maybe a, a political opponent? Someone who sees politics completely differently than, than you do? What, what about a, somebody of, of a different ethnicity, a different racial background, somebody who doesn't look like you, somebody who, who doesn't have the same set of experiences that you do? What about somebody who is maybe a dysfunctional family member? 
You know, the, the person in your family that drives you crazy because he or she's obnoxious, he or she doesn't see things the way you do. Maybe it's a refugee. Maybe it's a person with special needs. That's the other for you. And it's hard for you to get over their needs. Maybe it's a jerk, you know, the person that nobody really likes. Maybe it's somebody who's self-righteous, and they come from such a religious, self-righteous background. But did you know that as harsh a word as Jesus had for the self-righteous and the religious, more than one occasion it says that Jesus loved them. Who's the other for you? Unfortunately, with the tragedies that we've had lately, um, the last one that I'm aware of, at least, happening in Las Vegas, we have seen that there are some people who, who when I say they, 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 run the, they run the wrong way, they run into danger when everybody else is trying to flee from it. Sometimes they're called first responders, or sometimes it's firemen, police officers, paramedics, but they're running to the place that everybody else is trying to flee from. One of those tragedies that happened was in 9-11 when, when the towers had, had, had been run into by the airplanes. The airplanes had flown in there and there were people dying. There's fires. There's people jumping from windows. Everybody's trying to get away from there. But the first responders, the policemen, the firemen, all, they were running into the building. Many of them died when the towers collapsed. And Rudy Giuliani, who's the mayor, who was the mayor of of, of New York City, and at that time had wide support, very popular across the country. He, 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 he was giving kind of talks. At, he was trying to attend every funeral of a person who died, especially of someone who, who was a, a first responder. And so he shows up at the Brooklyn Tabernacle, which is an evangelical gospel-believing church in, in New York, because one of the policemen that had died was a, was a member there. And he was asked to speak kind of impromptu off the cuff. And so he gets up and, and he says this. He, he says some stuff, and he says this right here. He says, you know, people, I've learned something through all this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building and the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into it, do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save? I wonder what percentage of whites are up here. How many Jews are there? Let's see, are these people making $40,000 a year or $400,000 a year? No, they were saving lives because they're all precious. And that's what we're supposed to do all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you, Giuliani said, if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses first? I confess, he says, I confess I have not always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do it. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. Rudy Giuliani, a guy who would not consider himself a Christian as far as I know, captured the heart of God in those comments at that funeral. Because you could say that the New York City firefighters, that the New York City police officers, they had a heart like God and a heart unlike Jonah. Because, because God has a heart for all people. He has a heart for the other he has a heart no matter for people no matter how important, no matter what their status is. He has a heart for people no matter how needy or how broken or how flawed. But Jonah only had a heart for himself. Before you came this weekend, if somebody had asked you, what's the book of Jonah about? My guess is that many of you would say, wasn't he the guy that got swallowed by the whale? But that's not the message of Jonah. 
No, the message of Jonah is to be merciful like God. To be merciful like God, not self-righteous like Jonah. Because when Rudy Giuliani said, God wants us to value every human life the way he does, he forces us to ask ourselves the question, do I have a heart for people like God does? Because see, from the very beginning of the Bible, God has always had a heart for the, for, for the other person. So in the Old Testament, when the, when the Jewish people were, were God's people, part of God's nation, God kept telling them, they didn't hear it, but God kept telling them he had a heart for the Gentiles, the people that weren't Jews. In fact, did you know that Jesus got into some of the biggest trouble, some of the biggest ruckus, one of the reasons that they wanted to kill Jesus is because he told stories that the Gentiles were the heroes. He pointed out to the Jews that God has always had a heart for all people, not just them. He had a heart for women in a culture that valued only men. God had a heart for the younger when the older person in the family was always the one that was given the most rights and privileges. In fact, in the early church, so now we're about in the early church, a couple first centuries, there's this guy named Celsus who's attacking Christianity. So he's anti-Christian, writing these tracts like they would do, and then somebody would write a tract back, and they'd go back and forth uh, whether Christianity was good or bad. And Celsus said, as an attack against Christianity, he said, it seems like God has a preference for sinners. It seems like the Christian God has a preference for sinners, and that was his attack against Christianity. And we're like, well, yeah, you got that right. But I thought that was good news, not bad news. Well, here we are back in Jonah for our last time. It's a short Old Testament book. Hopefully you've had a chance to read through it this weekend. If not, I would encourage you to do it this week sometime. But God has given Jonah a second call. He's come to Jonah a second time, like we saw last night, telling him to go to the Ninevites. Well, Jonah finally goes. He, he reluctantly obeys God and goes to the Ninevites, and he preaches an eight-word. In English, it's eight-word sermon. In Hebrew, it's a five-word sermon. Jonah says this. He says, 40 more days until Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. That's the message. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention their sin, why they'd be overturned. He doesn't mention forgiveness or grace or salvation or hope. No, he doesn't mention any of those things. Instead, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Because Jonah doesn't mention those things because he doesn't want them to turn to God. He wants them to get what's due them. That even with this abbreviated message, even with the message that doesn't mention the grace and hope that God offers, the Ninevites repent. The Ninevites see their sin. They hear the message of Jonah. They, they, they feel the burden and the weight of their sin. And they get on their knees and they plead to God for mercy. Pick it up in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So, so they relent, or, or they repent, they turn from their sin, and God says, well, then I won't destroy you. It's Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. 
but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So the Ninevites, they repent of their evil. God relents of the disaster that he said would come, and all of that makes Jonah upset. God didn't destroy the Ninevites, and to Jonah, that's bad news. Now think about how this puts him at odds with God. Because in Luke 15, 10, it says, I tell you, there is more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So uh, when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. But Jonah doesn't rejoice when thousands of sinners repent and get right with God. No, Jonah is disappointed and angry because Jonah is unconcerned about the people that Jesus died for. Did you catch that? Jonah is unconcerned about the people that Jesus died for because the people that God loves, Jonah hates. Jonah does not have the heart of God. Remember in in chapter 2, he saw that Jonah's false prayer of repentance made God sick? Well, now what God does to save the Ninevites, that makes Jonah sick. And it's pretty weird because usually a preacher goes in and they, and they preach a, 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 a sermon, they give a message, and what their hope is is that, that everybody would respond, that, that there would be some sort of, of, of you know, good result from their work. But not Jonah. Jonah's upset when people positively respond to the message that God gave him. Now that's weird. There's not a lot of preachers like that. Why would Jonah be so upset? We find out in verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, not, is this not the reason what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? See, Jonah finally tells us why he didn't want to obey God and go to the Ninevites. Why did he get on that boat and flee to Tarshish? He, he says, God, the reason I did that is because I knew you're gracious. I knew you were merciful. I knew that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, those are attributes of God that usually cause us to praise God, but Jonah has turned them into an accusation. See, those attributes of God, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Those are like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Those, those attributes of God appear about a dozen times in the Old Testament. And they are good news to us, but they're bad news to Jonah. Why? Because he doesn't see himself as one who needs that grace. But the same grace that saved the Ninevites, that same grace is being offered to Jonah. But does Jonah see that he needs it? Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6. 
Now the Lord God appointed, now watch this word because it's going to keep coming up now. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Remember, Jonah was exceedingly upset over the Ninevites repenting, but he's exceedingly glad over this plant because it's saving him from his discomfort. Does it sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? Do you, do you find yourself praising God and giving thanks to God when your needs are being met? Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there, there's that word again, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed, see there it is again, everything in this story obeys God except Jonah. The storms obey God, the pagan sailors obey God, the sun, the wind, the worm, the plant, the great fish, everything obeys God in this book except Jonah. But when the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked God that he might die. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. See, Jonah is happy when his needs are being met. He's upset when they aren't. Jonah is self-consumed. Jonah is at the center of Jonah's world. See, do you see what God's doing here? Is God is drawing a connection for you and I. He's telling us that when we become self-consumed, when our life revolves around us, when our prayer requests revolve around us, when the people we like revolve around those people who love us back, when, when, when our praise and our thankfulness centers around our needs being met, when we're happy when things are going well for us and we're frustrated when they aren't, when we are self-consumed people, well, then we don't have a concern for God's people. We don't have a concern for people different than us. We don't love people the way God does. We become self-righteous and judgmental. Rick Warren wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And he started that book with the best first sentence of any Christian book I've ever read. The very first sentence of The Purpose Driven Life is short. It just says this, it's not about you. I wish I would have written that line. It's not about you. If I'd written it, I would have added a stupid at the end, right? Like, it's not about you, stupid. Because that's what I say when I say it to myself. Come on, Keith. How many times do you have to hear it's not about you before your heart gets it? It's not about my kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. See, do you ever ask yourself, what makes me upset? What really gets to me? What bothers me? What frustrates me? Is it when, when, when God's will is not being followed or when it's my will that's not being followed? See, I wish that really what got me bothered and upset was when God's will was being ignored or God's will was being rebelled against. But that's not the way it usually works in my life. 
Like if I get frustrated with my wife or if I get bummed out with our, with our marriage or our relationship, is it because God's will somehow, my wife isn't following God's will or, or being the kind of person God wants her to be? No. No. Maybe never in 27 years. <laughs> It's because she's not doing what I want her to do. It's not that she's not following God's will. She's not following my will. It's not that she's not doing what God wants her to do. It's that she's not doing what I want her to do. Because I live in the center of my world, and I think that everything and everyone should cater to me. Verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in another night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. See, the point that God is making to Jonah is that his heart is breaking about the wrong thing. He's worried about himself instead of the people that are made in the image of God. He's worried about his own convenience and his own comfort instead of the eternal destiny of people. See, that's Jonah's complex. It's a complex I think we have, a spiritual disease that results in us caring more about ourselves and being blind to the needs of others. Now, here's why that happened. These Ninevites were evil people. They were some of the most barbaric, horrible people that the world has ever known. They were known for torturing people. They were known for dismembering you. I mean, plucking out your eyeballs, taking off your body parts. But they would always keep one hand connected to your body. Because after they had taken you apart physically, they would shake your hand before they killed you. These were evil people. Some of us have experienced great trauma and evil in our life, but most of us have grown up in comfortable, middle-class, Western American 21st century environments. And it's hard for us to understand how much people have been hurt in human history, how much they have been traumatized by brutality. When Jonah is crying out for justice, he is not just some, some, some guy that's totally clueless. There's a reason he thinks these Ninevites should be judged. A guy named Monty Williams he's a, was an NBA basketball player and, and, and good, not a great star or anything, but good, played for the San Antonio Spurs and some other teams. And then he, he, had to, he retired after a kind of a journeyman career and, and went on to be a coach. But one thing about Monty Williams is he was a, always a, a man of great faith. He, he, he loved Jesus, and people loved him because he just had this kind of winsome, attractive personality. Just like this fly loves me. Uh, so, so, so unfortunately, his wife, and you might see her in a picture, I forget in this clip I'm going to show you. His wife was killed by a drunk driver. So they've got uh, kids, a family, and his wife is killed by a drunk driver. And Monty Williams speaks at his funeral. So it was amazing how many people from all over the NBA, all over the country came because they respected him so much. And he speaks, and it's a great little clip, but I'm just going to show you a couple minutes of it because I want you to, to, to listen 
Jackson how Monty Williams talks about the man who had just killed his wife and the mother of, of, of his children. So let's watch this clip from the funeral. This is hard for my family, but this will work out. And my wife would punch me if I were to sit up here and whine about what's going on. That doesn't take away the pain. But it will work out because God causes all things to work out. You just can't quit. You can't give in. See, the Bible says Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America teaches us to just numb that, and it's not true, but it is true. All you got to do is look around you. Get outside of these walls, and you know it's true. This will work out. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't mean it's not painful. Doesn't mean we don't have tough times and we're going to have tough times. What we need is the Lord. And that's what my wife tried to exhibit every single day. Now, I'm going to close with this, and I think it's the most important thing that we need to understand. Everybody's praying for me and my family, which is right. But let us not forget that there were two people in this situation. And that family needs prayer as well. And we have no ill will towards that family. In my house, we have a sign that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. That family didn't wake up wanting to hurt my wife. Life is hard. It is very hard. And that was tough. But we hold no ill will towards the Donaldson family. And we, as a group, brothers united in unity, should be praying for that family because they grieve as well. So let's not lose sight of what's important. God will work this out. My wife is in heaven. God loves us. God is love. What if Christians were known for loving the people that were unexpected for them to love? What if Christians were known for, for forgiving people who had hurt them? You know, some scholars wrestle with the question of, of who wrote the book of Jonah? Who would have known what he prayed? Who would have known his situation? And there's a, a, a contingent of scholars that say that, that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. Now, we'll never know for sure, at least not in this life, exactly who the author was. But, but wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't it be interesting if Jonah wrote the book of Jonah? Because you know what it would mean? It would mean that there is hope for you and me. If you've seen yourself in Jonah as someone who runs away from God, if you've seen yourself in Jonah as proclaiming truths about God that you don't believe in your heart, if you see yourself in Jonah not having God's concern for people, if you see yourself in Jonah with having kind of a hollow, hypocritical, hypocritical faith, but it's not real on the inside, the outside looks good, but the inside's much different, then there's great hope for us if there was hope for Jonah. See, because God doesn't give up on Jonah. God doesn't run away from runaways. God doesn't run away from runaways. See, nobody needed God's grace more than Jonah did. But we're asked to, in this last chapter to say, do we love people like God does? See, it's one thing for God to love my enemies. It's another thing for him to ask me to love my enemies. Now, who are the enemies? 
Maybe for some of you, it's, it's parents. Maybe for some of you, it's, a, it's, a, it's somebody who's hurt you. Like we said, it might be political opponents or, or, or it might be a, a number of people who, who they are your enemies and God calls you not to be okay with them or to tolerate them, but to love them and pray for them. How do I do that? Stephen Covey uh, tells a story about how he's in a New York subway and, and he's riding the subway as late at night and, and, and just kind of calm, you know, uh, people are just kind of reading their newspaper or sitting there thinking about a hard, long day, and, and it's peaceful. And this family, this man and his kind of young kids get on the subway car, and, and the kids are just out of control. They're running, they're screaming, they're running into people, and, and everybody's just like looking at them like, well, dude, what is up? Like, we're just trying to chill here after our day, and your kids are driving us crazy. And it goes on and on and on until finally Stephen Covey just kind of mentions, he goes, hey, you know, everybody's trying to relax here. Maybe you could calm the kids down. And the guy looks at Stephen Covey and goes, you are exactly right. He goes, I'm so sorry. We just came from the hospital where their mom died of cancer. I just... I zoned out. I'm sorry. And Covey says this. He says, look, everybody's got a story. Everybody has a story. The people that you don't like, your enemies, the ones who frustrate you and bother you, they've got a story too. But somehow what we do is we reduce people down to the thing we don't like about them, and then we feel better about ourselves. But everybody out there, they have a story. They're more complex than just the one thing that drives you crazy. See, see, this book, Jonah, is not about the Ninevites. This book is about you and me. We are Jonah. We are the ones who are screwed up. We are the ones who need God's grace. Like all the things that drive you crazy about the people that, that you don't like, your opponents, your, 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 your adversaries, your enemies. Your, what if you just started writing down all the things you didn't like about them and then took that list and said, have I ever done that? Have I ever done that? Have I ever said anything like that? Do you think there'd be anything on that list of all the reasons you don't like them that you aren't guilty of? God's grace comes for sinners, sometimes for pagan sinners like the Ninevites, and maybe that's you. And sometimes God's grace comes for sinners of people who should know better, the religious, people like Jonah, and maybe that's you. But we're one or the other. God's grace comes for us. So how do I get the power to love people who are different than me? Well, I realize that Jesus loved me when I was his enemy. How do I get the power to be patient with people who drive me crazy because Jesus was patient with me? How do I get the, 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 the power to, to pray for people who've hurt me because Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them to those who were crucifying me. I can learn to love my enemy with the same love that Jesus loved me with when I was his enemy. Maybe you... Uh, haven't taken communion that much. I'm sure there are some people here who, like me, didn't grow up in a religious home at all. And, and, and so w there's a lot of reasons we take communion, but, but one of the reasons that we do it is, is because it reminds us of the gospel, how good Jesus is to sinners like you and me. And when we are reminded of the gospel, of the grace that God extended to us, it empowers us. That grace empowers us to, to love a broken world.
because we know that God loved us and we're broken. See, Jesus came for sinners. He came, he broke his body, and said, take and eat. He took some wine on the night before he was crucified, and he poured it into a cup, and he said, this is my blood. Poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus came and he gave his life for sinners like us. And so when we come to this table, what we're saying is, I believe in Jesus. I am a sinner. I need his grace. I'm holding on to him and him alone. He's all I got. He's all I need. He's all I want. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and you're just going to come forward and take a piece of the bread and dip it into the wine that is in the hands of the people who are serving or the juice that's on the stool in front of them. You don't need to say anything, although they will say a word of encouragement for you. Use this time to sing. Use this time to pray. Use this time to say, God, what, what, what do you want to teach me this weekend? Use this time to say, Jesus, thank you that you are my Savior, that you've given me grace. Let's, let's, let's pray. Jesus, if the only thing we walk out of here this weekend is with that you are beautiful, you are glorious, we see your beauty and your patience and your love and your mercy toward us, that will be enough, Jesus. Because what we need more than anything is to see our brokenness, but that you are our Savior. That we are the runaways, but that you don't run away from us. Jesus, I pray that you would push the truths of the gospel deep into our heart this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. People of God, when you're ready, come to the table of the Lord.